0: Father, we praise you for your faithfulness to us in all things. Be with us now by the presence of the Holy Spirit and let him unlock to us, O Lord, the deep things written in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're continuing in an exposition of the book of Romans. I don't know how many weeks it's been to you. I'll have to go back and count. Um... I know that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones from the Westminster Chapel, who um, wrote a great commentary chapter by chapter, there's, what, 16 chapters in the Book of Romans, and he wrote 14 books, (laughs) whole books on those 16 chapters, so there's a lot here. We have a very tightly woven argument that I'm trying to hold together as we get to the next great crescendo in the great doctrines of our faith and of our salvation. Chapter 6, Book of Romans, verses 1 through 14. But, Pastor, we did this last week. Yeah, I know. Settle down. Do it again. Hopefully, start today with what we ended with last week and kind of wove this, weave this thing together. What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him, through baptism, into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. What an awesome passage of Scripture. What an awesome celebration of what was done for us. But I want to get into, because we're at the point in the text where Paul finally gives an application. Up until this point, he's telling us what Christ already did for us, but now he's saying do something on your own. Step into this. You're dead to sin. Don't give your members to sin. Right? You're He died once for all, all the faithful, right? So don't act as though you're going to die. You're going to live. You're going to live eternally with Christ. This is his promise. This is the thing he secured. But pastor, don't we all die? I'm going to get to that. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the great application. Reckon yourself. It's something you have to do. It's a mental exercise. You may remember that this verse became our application of the principles and doctrines taught by the apostle thus far in the epistle. We're in chapter 6, and he hasn't told us to do anything yet. He just told us what the nature of man was. He just told us what the nature of society was and that the wrath of God was upon men for suppressing the truth and acting in unrighteousness. He told us all these things. Then he told us Christ died. And like him, he went into the grave and we went into the waters of baptism and he rose up and we rose up in newness of life. And now he's teaching on this great union with Christ that whatever happened to Christ happened to you by faith. We own the things that Christ did for us. We are in union with Christ, not identified with Christ. I labored a lot to make that known last week. We don't become the only begotten son there's only one of those right so to this point there was really no application at all we as believers in the death and resurrection of Christ are portrayed in these first few chapters as the privileged recipients of the finished work of Christ the work is finished when jesus said it is finished it was just like he's it was just as if he said let there be light and there was light he said it is finished and it's finished so don't add to it. There's no application for believers with, re- with regard to what he did for your salvation or what we could call his salvific word. I love it when the, when the, when the uh, spell check tells me that salvific's not a word because it's our word. And I don't fix it. You can go in and fix it. I don't do that. Karen has to do that. But uh, I, I want it to scream at me. This is our word. I'm glad the computer doesn't know salvific. We contribute nothing to our salvation. We do get that, right? This is a gift. Oh, I'm going to demonstrate that for you this morning. This is a gift. It's entirely a work of Christ on the cross. It's his life in exchange for ours. It's his life bleeding away, friends, from the nails and the thorns and the whip and the fist and the spear. You remember all those things. It's his life bleeding away. It's his work that he himself proclaims is finished. It's his body interred in the tomb. It's he who lay in the tomb three days. And it's he and he alone who rose bodily from the tomb and was seen and proclaimed by the faithful. It's Christ who justified the elect saints before God the Father. We can't justify ourselves; He justified us. It's Christ who provided our, remember to this, access by faith into his grace, Paul wrote. We have access. Here's his grace over here, and there's no access without faith. But he gives us the faith. That's the access into his grace, where we access all of these great privileges and benefits that believers have, like going to Christ with our petitions to make our needs known. What an awesome thing. And so when you preach the gospel to your friends, and they say, well, I don't believe that, say, I know you don't, but wouldn't it be great if it was true? Wouldn't it be great if you could really go to God in prayer and He'd really answer your prayer? Wouldn't it be great if by faith in Christ you live eternally, not just live eternally in a sin-cursed world, but live eternally in the presence of God, out of the presence of sin and sinners? Wouldn't it be great so he provided access by faith into his grace in which we stand and rejoice in the glory of God. That's what the singing's all about, friends. We're standing, we're rejoicing, we're praising God. We're his people, and we're grateful. We're a grateful people. We could stay home this morning and read the New York Times in our underwear with a cup of coffee in front of us, like so many people do. We could get on our bikes and do a, a I don't know, a triathlon or a marathon or whatever it's called with a bike. We could do all those things. But no, we're here. We're worshiping God because that's what Christians do. There's not a lot we can give to God, friends, but we can praise Him according to the way He designed one day in seven. That's why we're here. It's by His effort that we've now been justified by His blood and saved from wrath. Romans 4, 9. It's the sinless life of Christ in exchange for our sinful lives by which we've been, quote, reconciled and saved by his life. Are you saved today? If you, you can answer, by the way. Are you saved today? Yes. Okay, that's too loud. Don't answer that loud. Yes. I'm, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, right? If you're saved today, let me ask you a question. All right? You've got you to be a prophet now. You've got to look to the future. Will you be saved tomorrow? I don't know. I hope that's not a false prophecy. I'll have to stone you. (laughs) Will you be saved next week? How about a month from now when you fall into sin? Will you be saved? I hope this is what we know this is where we're going. All right? This is what he's trying to get through to us. Reckon yourselves dead to sin. Friends, when you sin, when you backslide, it doesn't make you alive to sin. You're still dead to sin, but you didn't reckon yourself dead to sin. You decided to sin. You see? It's the sinless life of Christ in exchange for our sin-filled lives by which we've been reconciled and saved by his life. Chapter 5, verse 10. He also caused us to be dead to Adam. We were born in Adam, and we died in Adam and are alive to God in Christ. The finished work of Christ leaves nothing for us to contribute. And I'm going to demonstrate this to you right now the way Paul did it. I'm going to put together a conglomeration of verses here from the last couple of chapters. All right? So he writes this. But the free gift is not like the offense. Chapter 5, verse 15. That the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ... And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, but the free gift which comes from many offenses resulted in justification. And the gift of righteousness will reign in the life through the one Jesus Christ. Through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men resulting in justification. Do you think it's a gift? Six times. And the apostle even gets redundant. Friends, I think you know a little bit something about, about gifts and gift giving, don't you? When someone gives you a gift, if, if I come to you on Christmas time and I get this wonderful package and I give it to you and you're all excited and you're going to open it. And I say, oh, just before you open it, um, it costs me 20 bucks and I'll need you to chip in 10. <laughs> it's not a gift. The Lord knows what a gift is. So Paul gets redundant and he adds a modifier, even though to say free gift is redundant. Of course it's free. It's a gift. But he says free gift and gift interchangeably so that you know it's free. It didn't cost you, it cost him. So when I give you a gift and say it cost me 20 bucks, that's just to make you know what a cheap giver I am. (laughs) It cost him his life. (laughs) I hope we may see and be persuaded that our reconciliation with the wrathful God of Romans 1 is the free gift of his grace. And as I said, I think we know the whole concept of a gift is that someone else pays for it. And just so we may not be confused about the work of Christ and the nature of the gift, the apostle adds the modifier free. Free gift. Come and drink from the waters of life freely, the Bible says. And so a gift which by its very nature is free to the recipient is doubly assured that this particular gift is free. I don't think I can emphasize it any more than that I don't think Paul can it's not something that we may share in the expense of because if we did it's what not a gift it's not a thing that we could possibly give to ourselves it's a thing conferred upon the faithful by the blessed love and mercy of God on high so having established this great and precious promise that the life of Christ was acceptable to God as the price paid for our sins, the apostle finally goes on to give us an application. We like to engage in this, don't we? We like to contribute something to the virtue of society and for the pleasure of God. We like to contribute something. We're dead to sin, but that's the negative part, but we're alive to God, so let's do something, right? And so he says, as a first application, the first thing you have to do is believe what I've said. I said you were dead to Adam, reckon yourselves dead to Adam. I said you're alive to God, reckon yourselves alive to God. We have to fully take hold in our lives in the here and now of the wonderful nature of the gift. Unwrap it, play with it. Our salvation is secured, and so Paul beseeches us to consider ourselves secure. Don't go in and out of assurance, friends. Toss to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Craftiness of men by which they lie in wait to deceive. You know the verses. Don't be tossed to and fro. We've been given eternal life, and so Paul urges the saints to walk and talk as though we've escaped the bondage of death. We will not die. I'm saying that emphatically. I know you want me to qualify it, but for now, I'm just going to let it marinate a little. We will not die. The Scripture is very, very clear on this. this is the, the apostle would have us live as those who know that death no longer awaits us. Now, we may live lives of insecurity without assurance, and I assure you that your doubts and your fears concerning the nature of your new status before God will not keep will not hinder you from taking hold of the benefits he secured for you. Notice I said status. Friends, you have a new position, a new status before God. You're not like other sinners. Yes, I know you're going to mess up and you're going to sin. You're not like other sinners, though. You're dead to Adam. You're alive to God. You only sin because you have forgot to reckon yourselves alive to God and dead to sin. So we who died to sin live in it any longer? And the answer is no. How could we? So we can live lives of insecurity and not have assurance of our salvation. But friends, that's just going to take away the victory. That's not going to take away the reality. We're still going to go to heaven. You're going to go to heaven with all your doubts and fears and unassurances. But you'll have more assurance when you hear on Sunday morning for the rest of the series on Romans, I'll tell you that. That's how... Well, what do you think he gave us each other for? So we could stay home and watch a pastor on YouTube? Switch the channel. We've been given eternal life. Paul wants us to walk in it. He doesn't want us to walk through our lives fearing and doubting that the promise isn't true. I'm going to demonstrate that for you. Your complete assurance will make you all the more victorious in your lives. It will make you all the more powerful in your evangelism. When you're unequivocal on that point, your evangelism will be stronger. It'll make you unafraid to face death when it comes upon you. And so Paul says, in effect, since you are free, reckon yourselves free. Since you're sure, since you're secure rather in Christ, reckon yourselves secure. Since you're, you're saved, act like one who's saved. Since your old man is crucified, act as though he's dead to you. Don't give him any more life. He never speaks of reckoning ourselves dead to sin, or rather, he, he, he speaks here of reckoning ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Further on in the epistle, he'll state the nature of his own personal reckoning. He speaks of being persuaded. Remember when he said, I am fully persuaded? Romans 8, and so it's right here in your notes. I'm fully persuaded that neither death nor life, and then he mentions all these other things, right, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Death or life, nothing can separate you. Angels, principalities, powers, he means in the heavenly places, demonic spirits, the devil himself, things present, things to come, height, depth, Any other created thing, none, shall be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And he says, I am persuaded of this, meaning I reckon myself alive to God and dead to sin. I reckon my salvation secure. And so that's the application. He's persuaded, and he would persuade us. Friends, much of our evangelism is persuading. It's convincing, right? Getting someone to see the logical argument of the Apostle Paul about how Christ saved us. And again, when they say, it just doesn't seem real to me, give them the fantasy. Say, but wouldn't it be great if it was true? And at some point, when they need it, they'll say, you know, when he preached to me, he really believed it. And he'll get on his knees and say, make me be persuaded the way he's persuaded. I want to reckon myself alive to God. The word reckon is from the Greek. It's logizomai. Isn't that a great word? Logizomai. It has to do with the logos, with the word. It's properly used, I'm quoting the, I'm quoting the uh, lexicon, of, nu- of numerical calculation. You ever say, you, you know, reckoning is doing math. You're doing reckoning, right? You're accounting things. It's an accountant's word reckoning. Luke writes of him, um, of Jesus, that he was numbered with the transgressors. He could have says he was reckoned with the transgressors. It's it's logismi, same word. He was numbered. Jesus was numbered with the other thieves on the cross, right? He was reckoned as one of them. Even though he wasn't, he was considered to be one. A second use is, it says, B, it's used metaphorically. By a reckoning of characteristics or reasons to take into account. Romans 2.26 talks about this. The verse refers to the uncircumcised who keep the law being reckoned as though they're circumcised. Right? They're the the Jews had a sign of being the people of God. It was circumcision. The Gentiles didn't, but by their works, they were reckoned as being circumcised in God's sight. That one's Paul was dealing with that whole point of the of the Jews and the Gentiles receiving the same gospel. They by faith they were all reckoned the people of God. By now we know that Abraham's faith was accounted to him for righteousness. What do you suppose the word accounted is? Logismai. The word for account here is logizomai. it means reckoned. Reckon yourselves, he writes. Abraham's faith was reckoned to him for righteousness, we could say. Consider yourself to be in the state of grace that's been described in these writings. Act like the guy in the Old Western when they say to you, Are you saved and going to God? Reckon I am. Note, he begins with the word likewise, though. That's what's interesting here. Begins with the word likewise. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves. In other words, like the one that's already been mentioned. You can't say likewise to begin a sentence if, you, if you're not linking it to something you've already said, right? All the things that happen to Christ are to be reckoned as having happened to you. So likewise, you also are dead to sin. Lloyd-Jones comments on this. He says, the first guiding principle is that we are to reckon as being true of ourselves what the apostle has previously been telling us is true of the Lord Jesus. The very words likewise and also make this abundantly clear. Friends, all we have is the text. Use every word of it. Likewise, like I just said about Jesus, likewise you also reckon yourself dead to sin once for all. It's done. All those things, all those principles and transformations mentioned above are what Paul refers to here. And so we're reminded of the doctrine of our union with Christ. That's what we're laboring over here. Our union with Christ. Simply stated, we read this. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Your union with Christ. He died, you died. He's resurrected, you will be resurrected. He goes on, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Once means he dies once. For all means he died for you once. I'm telling you, you're not going to die if you believe in Christ. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. The only way you can die is to be under the law, which is a death sentence. Grace is the freedom from that. Your debt's been paid. The death's happened. Someone substitutionarily, another word, Spell check won't like. Friends, what happened to Christ happened to you. That's called our union with Christ. He died to sin, so did you, when you believed. He was buried, so were you. And the apostle uses the illustration of baptism as the burial. It's a beautiful illustration. He was raised from the dead, so will you be, just as you rose from the waters of baptism. What's happened to Christ has happened to you, so reckon or account yourself indissolubly joined to him. What's his is ours. He what he conquered was death, but he conquered death in us. Now I want to point to you, sometimes we come to a place in life where I'm sorry to tell you well, actually, I'm happy to tell you, you got to disregard the things you see. And I'm going to give you this example. The whole example here is we have to have faith like Abraham had. Abraham didn't consider the things he saw. He considered not his own body. Remember? He's 100 years old. No kids promised to be the father of a multitude. In fact, that was his name, Abraham. So I pointed this out last week. This is where we take the naked word. Do you, do you, you don't like the word naked, naked word? Say unadorned word. I like naked. We'll take the naked word of God. You don't have to add anything to it. Strip, it, strip everything down, but just what it says. Take it as immutably, unimpeachably, Undoubtedly true, which, of course, it is. So we must reckon it as true regardless of any evidence to the contrary. And I mean all the forensic physical evidence of our carnal existence. Remember this, friends. Abraham believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. And what's extraordinary about Abraham's belief I think is twofold. Number one... It was not reflected in the material reality around him. He had to deny that. He's 100 years old, no kids, promised to be the father of many nations. Friends, that's almost ludicrous. But he didn't consider his own body. He considered the naked word of God only. So here he is walking around. Now, if you're Hebrew and someone says, hey, Abraham, they're really saying, hey, father of a multitude, And they must have snickered as he walked by. He doesn't have any kids. Named himself Abraham. He says God gave it to him. I mean, think about it. He's the father of a multitude. He had no children. And number two, what God promised Abraham was clearly impossible. It was impossible. He was already 100. Now, he didn't know Sarah was going to die and he was going to live to be 147 and spawn six more nations. Go to Genesis 25, and it says it right in, the first, right in the first verse. He had six more children who spawned six more great nations before he died. That's what Abraham did, friends. He, he believed God regardless of the visible evidence and experiences to the contrary. And so we read, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which are not as though they are, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, what? According to what was spoken. God spoke it. It had to be true. Even though it seemed impossible to him. It had to be true because it was spoken. And we don't always get to see it in our lives. He didn't see himself the father of a multitude. I mean, the poor guy only lived to 147 Probably kept down on the cholesterol and stuff. You know, it was probably very... They didn't care about any of that, believe me. So shall your descendants be, God said. And then we read, not being weak in faith, in other words, not letting all other kind of things seep into my reality, he did not consider his own body. He could have went like this. I'm 100 years old. I, I know he said it, but he couldn't have meant it. But he didn't consider his own body. Already dead since he was about 100 years old, it says. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not stagger. Your Bible probably says waver. The old version says stagger. He did not stagger at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced, or what? Fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Friends, faith convinces, faith persuades in the face of all other seemingly contradictory things. The word of God comes through. And your feelings don't matter in the faith arena. Abraham had to put aside his feelings. In fact, he couldn't do it completely because he was still you know, a, a fault-ridden man like all of us. So they came up with this carnal plan for children. You remember Sarah said, well... I don't know, maybe God's not really coming through. Maybe he wants us to help him, so let's take Hagar, the, the slave, and we'll have son with her, which he did. You know Ishmael was born, right? Do you know Isaac wasn't born for another 14 years? He had this carnal plan. That's why when it, when it came time, he wasn't quite sure what had happened. And then he has the child. He has the faith child. And God says, oh, you got to go up on the mountain and sacrifice them to me. God's word still had to come true, right? What he needed from, I'm not going to go and preach on Genesis now, but what he needed from Abraham was the commitment that even the son of promise was not dearer to him than the God of promise. And so he did. So God didn't let him do it, Right? But now God had a legal right to sacrifice his son. See, a covenant is a two-sided thing, right? Your feelings don't come into it. Imagine his feelings, taking the son. He didn't even tell Isaac what was happening, right? You would think God would say, now take Ishmael up on the mountain and get rid of him. He's the the carnal son of your own sinful plotting with your wife. But he didn't do that. And so your feelings don't... Matter to faith, and neither do your observations. God is purely saying to us, do not believe your lying eyes, believe me. Politicians say that all the time, but you can't believe them. But you can believe it when God does, right? So do not trust in the fact that your failing body is going to thwart the promise. For it's not faith if it cannot pierce the physical, visible world and transport us into the reality of promise. Friends, we lived in the land of promise, or what some people call the promised land, right? Faith transforms sight. What is seen becomes less reliable to the faithful man than what is promised. The faith of Abraham becomes Paul's example of saving faith. Friends, what I'm trying to do here is get away from what we all do. We read the Bible in little spurts, and we forget all the context. I don't just want to go here to the promise without showing you the things Paul laid out in the first five chapters. I don't want to forget this tightly woven argument he's making to persuade us of the reality of the veracity, the immutability of God's spoken word. You're the father of a multitude. It's done. It might take another 147 years and you might die before it comes about, but it's done. Abraham is still the father of those people. The faith of Abraham becomes Paul's example of saving faith. And you'll need this kind of belief when you come to the inevitable, that is the specter of your own death. That's the next point of the text. Verses 8 and 9 say, now if we died with Christ, now what does that mean? If we have faith. In the Christ who died. If we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And then he says, likewise, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the essence of our union with Christ. What's happened to him has happened to us. What's true of him is true of us. Now to drive home that very point, I'll make to you this extraordinary statement. I can say with complete confidence that if you have faith in Christ... If your faith is of the variety of Abraham's faith, if you consider not your own body but rather the one who promised eternal life is also able to perform it, then you will never die. You cannot die. You've passed from death to life. Now in order to shorten the suspense, because I know you're dying to make me qualify things that Paul doesn't qualify, I'm going to... Explain this extraordinary statement. The believer, friends, we pass through death on our faith journey. All right? Your friends will see you die. You won't. The believer will come to the door of death, but he won't enter it. There's another door here. Death's here. And all the, the broad road is going in there. And then there's another door. And like, it says, like, employees only or something. You, that's where you go. Staff. No one dare enter there, and if they do, there's a couple of bouncers there, cherubim with swords. You have to have faith to get in there, right? Friends, I'll go so far as to say that the New Testament doesn't speak of death with regard to the believer. The New Testament speaks of sleep. I'll say it louder, Sleep. It speaks of sleep. Paul says this, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which sleep in Jesus, he means people that died, right? Those that are asleep in Jesus will God bring with them. He's telling the Thessalonians here not to worry about the ones who died because they knew the promises that we're not going to die, but that didn't mean that some of us wouldn't pass through death on the way to, on the way to Christ, on the way to glory. And he's clarifying. Remember what he wrote to the Corinthian church. We're going to hang this over the, the nursery. It says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. <laughs> right? We'll not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. It's like he's saying, we're not all going to die. Christ is going to come while some of us are alive, and we don't even pass through death. We get a total free ride. He's clarifying the doctrine here. Friends, if we're so fortunate to be here when Christ returns, we'll be those who never even pass through the realm of death. All believers at the end of their earthly lives pass through death, but those who are here when Christ returns are spared even the, that part of the faith journey. Remember what he said to the disciples about Lazarus. John chapter 11. You know, i got to tell you this. Lazarus, The raising of Lazarus, Lazarus is Jesus giving an object lesson. He went out there. And Lazarus is dead, but a whole lot of people were dead. They were in a cemetery. He didn't raise them all. Forget this whole universal thing about everyone goes. They don't. The ones he calls come out, right? And so he goes there, and he makes this object lesson because everyone knows Lazarus is dead, but Jesus won't admit it. Watch what he says. Our friend Lazarus sleeps, he said, but I go that I may wake him up. (laughs) <laughs> the Pharisees hated him for that they laughed him to scorn and then he cried because he knew what they thought he felt their pain Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five, 35 the shortest verse in the Bible I've preached on it more than any other verse Jesus wept and they said, see how he loved him and only due to their incredulous natures what do I mean by incredulous unable to believe That's what incredulous, right? When we say, oh, it was incredible, that means you don't believe it. But we don't use words properly anymore, so forget about that. Jesus clarifies it later for them. And then it says, well, Jesus said plainly to them, all right, Lazarus is dead. And he says to Martha, your brother will rise again. Friends, death for the believer is nothing less than a glorious beginning. Jesus has said again to his hearers, truly, truly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. And listen to the promise. And shall not come into condemnation because he's passed from death to life already. The Lord said what has to be the most extraordinary statement in all of Scripture. And he says it to Martha at the tomb. Remember, nervous Martha is always busy and distracted. It's probably because when he sat down that day and, they, and, that other, and that other anecdote in the Gospels where he comes to the family of Bethany, see, he loved, his family were friends with Martha and Mary and Lazarus, all right? And they had a great estate and they would put him up during Passover week. Him and all the disciples could stay in this wonderful estate they had and he came there and mary of course is concerned about getting all the stuff ready which is good they have to do that but right now i'm teaching you something that you have to hear so sit down and listen your sister did and she did the right thing so he says to distractive Martha, do you believe me now it's a great when you take it all together it's a really great story isn't it if you don't forget the rest And so the Lord said what has to be the most extraordinary statement. He says it to Martha at the tomb of her brother. It's a verse I declare at every funeral, particularly at the funeral of a fellow believer. And he says this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. I believe that he... Who made the promise is able to perform it because I'm claiming the faith of Abraham. Even though it doesn't seem like it can be true, it's true. That's what faith does, it goes through the seeming things. And so he proclaims this impossible reality as though it's not only possible, but expected. The man of faith is an expectant guy. It's not only not impossible, it's a certainty. And after he says it, what do you suppose he does? He challenges Martha with this. He said, those who believe in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So take it as though he said it to you. He said you'll never die. Do you believe this? Lazarus is dead in the tomb when he said it. If there's anything that this busy, distracted, wonderful person Martha Has done. This is her Abraham moment, don't you think? Lazarus is in the tomb and Jesus said, no, no, he's sleeping. Jesus declares that Lazarus will rise again. And what does she do? She takes the baby step of faith and says she knows he'll rise again in the resurrection in the last day. All right, you got your doctrine straight. But that's not what I'm saying. You see, I'm the resurrection and I am here. This is what he's saying to her. Her doctrine's good, but her faith needs prompting. Her, her brother suffered and died. He was wrapped and entombed. Four days have passed, and she acknowledges that if the stones rolled away from the entrance of the tomb, a horrible stench would emanate from the opening, and then the Pharisees would get mad because they hate nasty dead things. Surely she's right regarding all these obvious observations. But the Lord comes on the scene with nothing but His Word. He doesn't care what they've experienced. Well, He... He cares in a human sense, but it doesn't matter to the outcome. He comes with nothing but his word, friends, and he speaks to the contrary of every visible thing in their reality that day. This sickness is not unto death. The guy's dead. It's for the glory of God. Our friend Lazarus sleeps. I go to wake him up. I'm the resurrection of the in the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? (laughs) Praise God. I'm glad you kids are here. It's good for you. It's good for us. Friends, the New Testament has a very bold stance on death. And there's the constant assertion that death, the greatest fear, is extinguished in Christ and the fear of it demolished. Remember the verses from Hebrews which say this. Inasmuch then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil." And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Death isn't the bondage in that paragraph. The fear of death is the bondage. Death isn't the bondage because it's dead. Even him who had the power of death is overcome. It's only the fear because you're reckoning yourself fearful of it, you see. Paul recites the ancient proverb of Hosea, which says, O grave, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? It's like Paul is taunting death. Faith is audacious. It stands at the tomb and says, The dead man's alive because he believed in me, and I'm here to reclaim him. The audacity of faith. As if that's not a bold enough stance of faith, he goes further in his rhetoric to the Philippians where he said, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And then he goes on and says to them, you remember remember the exchange? He says to them, well, I'm hard-pressed between the two. I'd like to stay here and help you guys out, but I really feel like going to Christ because it's far better there than here, even though you're here and I love you. He said, but, you know, you're talking about a guy who, by the way, Philippians is one of the prison epistles. He's in prison. Let's give him a break, first of all, right? He's in prison. And if he decides he wants to go to Christ rather than stay in the prison, I get that, don't you? But he says it's gain. It's far better. I'm hard-pressed between the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. In other words, friends, the lives we prize so much, the things we value are so much less than what we will appropriate by faith. And Paul said this also to the Philippians, what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to the death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. No matter what comes... I will attain the resurrection of the dead. And I would also add this, friends. In your evangelism, when the hearer scoffs or is unbelieving, ask them, wouldn't it be wonderful if all I've said is true? Can you think of a better person to rely on than Jesus Christ? You know, when people say, in my evangelism, when I'm in the throes of talking about the gospel, and someone says, well, yeah, I don't believe that. I believe that we all die and, and all men are good and all men go to heaven or they say something. I said, that's, that's fine. That's a wonderful belief system. But what authority do you quote from that? Is that just something you thought up or just something that seems reasonable to you? Try to remember the things I'm telling you, I'm going on the authority of Jesus Christ. That always makes an impression. You ever notice that like uh, politicians that couldn't care about Christ or the church always want Jesus on, his, on their side? They always say, you know, tell you how to act. They always tell you what Jesus said. You should love your enemy and all that. They, they, are, they know all the things. Jesus matters to them. So say, wouldn't it be nice if you had an authority for your view that was as powerful as the one that I have? Think about that in your evangelism. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all I've said is true? Can you think of a better person to rely on, a more prominent authority than Jesus Christ? I know that now you don't believe me, Wouldn't your life be so much better if you did? Amen? Father, give us faith and nurture our faith with the teachings of the Word of God. Father, in Jesus' name, let us be on our knees praising God for all that He has accomplished through Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf. In His name we pray. Amen.